0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to play the narration of the first chapter of my God is Open book. And this was narrated by Kenny Burchard, and I am eternally grateful. He's got a better voice than mine, it resonates better for uh, audio play. And he did this out of the kindness of his heart as well. So hopefully he could do the whole book, and we could put it up on Audible, and then we could reach a wider audience. I like consuming books on Audible. I got some uh, books I actually need to respond to on the podcast that are on Audible. I got uh, Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm, and there's an entire chapter in there where he tries to defend future omniscience of all things. It's, It's funny. It's funny. But this week is the preface to God is Open. Enjoy. God is
1: Open. Examining the Open Theism of the Biblical Authors by Christopher Fisher. Narrated by Kenny Burchard This book is dedicated to my father, who exemplified intellectual integrity throughout my life. Preface Open theism can rightly be divided into two camps, those who accept openness based on philosophy and those who accept openness based on the biblical witness. This book will only deal with the biblical case for open theism. Particularly of interest will be understanding what each individual author in the Bible attempted to communicate to their respective audiences. This seems like the most natural and honest way to treat the text. After all, the author's intended audience would have to come to the text with the same assumptions. It will be assumed that the author was genuine and not trying to mislead their audience. This approach is the most probable method to lead the reader to understanding biblical theology. The question is not, how do we build a philosophy that fits all the writings of the Bible? Nor is it, how do we build a theology that fits nicely together? But instead, what theology was advocated by each individual writer of the Bible, and does it fit together? What each author was attempting to communicate to their reader is much more important than trying to force every text into a uniform framework. Where many theologians err is trying to force theology into texts where it doesn't belong. They will superimpose later ideas on earlier narratives. One example of this type of theological thinking is found in Calvinist circles. Some key doctrines of Calvinism rely heavily on the works of Paul Arguably taken out of context. When asked where these doctrines are advocated in the rest of the Bible, often Calvinists cannot answer. The theological assumptions of Calvinism are just not found uniformly in the Bible. It is a mistake to force authors who lived centuries before the New Testament into a theology that is tenuously derived from the New Testament. The more textually focused Calvinists, claim that biblical theology is progressive and that Israel was growing theologically over the Old Testament and into the New. But then they have to abandon strict inerrancy of the Bible, claiming the Old Testament writers did not have the full theological picture. The Calvinist has then given up or redefined their claim of biblical inerrancy, something which some Calvinists gladly do. To stay with the example The less scrupulous Calvinist who wishes to preserve a claim of biblical inerrancy will claim that each individual author agreed with Calvinism, but wrote in a cryptic way to their audience. John Calvin wrote that God lisps to man as a nursemaid to a child. This approach does great harm to the integrity of the text, and is even less helpful than philosophical debates for determining any sort of truth. After all, who determines which texts have special hidden meanings? How does an observer objectively pick which proof texts do not have a straightforward meaning and which ones do? For the Calvinist, how does one argue that Malachi 3.6 means God is immutable, while at the same time arguing that Genesis 6.6 6 helps the reader understand an eternal plan of God? Is it not just as possible... Or more so, that Malachi 3.6 helps the reader understand God's commitment to Israel, and Genesis 6.6 is absolute? Spiritualization or marginalization of the text is unhelpful and ultimately ends up substituting preconceived philosophy as the metric for interpreting the text. Philosophy has its place. But with philosophy, as with any other field based on introspection, the field does not have concrete answers. Reasonable people might come to opposite conclusions. It's much harder to argue that one's philosophy is true than to argue which specific theology was held by individual biblical writers, or anyone for that matter. Whereas philosophy has unlimited flexibility, there is only so much flexibility in trying to represent the beliefs of the biblical writers, Pressing it too hard causes it to break, causing casual readers to question the integrity of the interpreter. Treating the Bible at face value eliminates much subjectivity. Philosophy might sound nice and might make people feel good, but good feelings have very little effect on differentiating what is real from what is fiction. As an example, it might sound nice to think that everyone in the world lives as millionaires, but our good thoughts do not change reality. It might sound nice that God has detailed and specific plans for every person's life, but the question remains is it true? Subjective evaluations of the preferability of statements have no effect on the truth of the statements. This cannot be stressed enough. As such, This work will deal specifically with determining what the authors of the Bible believed, in spite of implications. If the Bible can be read in this fashion, then each biblical author will be allowed to communicate their own theology. The reader, in turn, will be left with two alternatives if they wish to remain true to the text. Either the reader can accept the biblical witness, or reject the biblical witness, in favor of of philosophy. The purpose of this book is to explore the various portraits of God throughout the Bible as presented by the individual authors. Attention will be given to how Yahweh is described, how he acts, and how he thinks. Implications will be explored. This book will focus on particularly interesting passages throughout the Bible. This will include common texts used by classical theologians, common texts used by open theists, and various overlooked texts. This by no means will be an exhaustive survey. The passages chosen will deal primarily with the nature and character of God. The context and meaning will be explored. Possible ranges of meaning will be discussed. And the limitations of interpretations will be determined. Normal reading comprehension will be the standard, using common communication standards, identifying possible figures of speech, cultural idioms, and metaphors. Context will be crucial, not only the context of the immediate point being presented, but the scope of the author's writing and possible cultural contexts. Only in the preface and the last chapter. Will this work speak with a systematic theology in mind? This preface will be used to introduce the reader to the basic theological worldviews. The last chapter will be used to make sense of strong themes in the works of Israel. The middle chapters will examine theology from the perspective of individual authors, avoiding forced conclusions. Texts that the author had available will be assumed to have had influence. For example, The author of Isaiah most likely had access to Genesis, and no access to Romans. Texts for future periods will only be referenced if it could help clarify the cultural meaning of a previous text. For instance, language scholar Joel Hoffman examines the use of covet throughout the Bible to determine possible word meaning by divergent contexts. Later texts will be considered if they show specifically how later generations understood previous texts, if there's a direct reference, but the general practice of using later texts to override and negate earlier texts will not be entertained. After this survey is completed, the next task will be to consider if there's some way that all the authors can be reconciled between each other. If this is possible, the result would be a biblical systematic theology. This is not going to be a systematic theology in the normal sense, as the Bible does not entertain speculative metaphysics. The coherence of this new systematic theology would show that throughout several thousands of years, a consistent witness was given towards God, and this, in turn, would provide good evidence towards the opinion that the Bible is trustworthy. Consistency is axiomatic to trustworthiness. Inconsistent things are not true by definition. This biblical theology would be the starting point by which any historical biblical philosophy can be built. This study will not assume that the Bible is true. After all, before knowing if something is true, a reader has to understand what is being said. Those who begin to look at the Bible with the idea that the Bible is by necessity true often use their biases to force narrowly directed understandings of the text. This creates an intellectual hazard, as biases are used to override narratives. The text becomes pliable and able to support any conclusion, no matter how remote from the author's intent. Open versus Classical Theism Before embarking on the subject of open theism, stressed by the biblical authors, it is important to define the terms and understand the concepts. That way, when varying beliefs about the text are discussed, a reader can have insight into thinking of the adherents. It would not be of any good to criticize a classical belief or negative theology if the reader does not understand what that entails. Understanding worldviews will help a reader know the presumptions being brought on to the text from those that share the specific intellectual background. Open theism is simply the belief that God is free, dynamic, and loving. This is the primary message in the Bible. God is not constrained by immutability, but free to create and innovate. Open theism is then, at its core, the rejection of Platonic influence on the Church. The Platonic influences posit a God of pure actuality, pure simplicity, which then necessitates an immutable and impassable God. Although some self-declared open theists add Platonic ideas into their overarching theology, open theism, as presented in this book, will be used to denote agnosticism on these attributes. These attributes are just not found in the biblical text. In contrast, the biblical story is that God is relational and dynamic. Pastor Bob Enyart of Denver Bible Church, an open theist, states, "...the future is open because God is free and God is creative. The settled view of God denies God's own freedom." and the ability to create, do something new, etc. God was, is, and always will be free. God was, is, and always will be a creative God. Close quote. This is really the heart of the matter. Who is God? The classical position is primarily a statement on the nature of God. Is God pure actuality, or can God become angry? Is God immutable, or can God become sad? Is God impassable, or can God feel emotions? Open theism states that God is free to do as God pleases. God can write new songs, create new relationships, and even change the future. This is the God that the Bible depicts, a God eternally interacting with His creation, reacting and moving living and creating, planning and accomplishing all his goals. Open theism is the Christian doctrine that the future is not closed but open because God is alive, eternally free, and inexhaustibly creative. Biblical open theism is the belief that the Bible depicts God as God truly is. The God of the Bible is truly loving, powerful, Righteous, faithful, vengeful, relational, creative, and desperately beautiful, God raises up nations and destroys them. Isaiah 40:23, illustrated throughout the history of Israel. God is heartbroken by rebellion and exacts retribution. Genesis 6:6-7, illustrating God's reoccurring judgments on mankind. God pleads with his people to return to him and attempts everything he possibly can to make them love him. Isaiah 5.4, a consistent claim of Israel's prophets. God is nauseated by heinous sin. Jeremiah 19.5, illustrated in God's judgment against Sodom. God sometimes even forgets His people's sin for God's own sake. Isaiah 43.25 one of several strategies undertaken by God to reach Israel. God feels scorned and rejected when we abandon Him, Hosea 1, verse 2, illustrated by God's vengeance against nations who reject Him. But most interestingly of all, God is love, 1 John 4, verse 8. This is illustrated throughout the Bible. God so loved mankind that God made us in His image, Genesis 1, verse 26. God created man for a love relationship. Not dissuaded by a general moral decline, God even chose a special nation to be His priest people through which He could reach the world. Exodus 19, verse 6. God also so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whosoever believes in Him has everlasting life. John 3, verse 16. God describes Himself as relational and powerful. God can do anything He wants. God can test people and learn that people love Him, Genesis 22:12. God can listen to new songs, songs we write for Him, Psalm 33, verse 3. And God can perform new creations, 2 Corinthians 5:17. God even explains His relationship to mankind in the most loving way. God states that He will stop judgment against a nation if they repent, a judgment God thought to bring upon the nation. Jeremiah 18, verse 8. This is righteousness. God thinks He is going to destroy a nation, but repents based on human repentance. We see this wonderfully illustrated in Jonah, where the most wicked people on earth repent. And then God does not bring upon them what He said He would bring upon them, Jonah 3 verse 10. In Jonah, God's mercy is described as one of God's foremost characteristics. God is a God who repents of evil, Jonah 4 verse two. God so loved sinners that time and time again He laments about their unbelief. In fact, God states that He tried so hard to save us that He expected us to turn to Him, but we did not. Jeremiah 3 verse 7. In God's infinite love, God has given us the ability to interact with him and the freedom to reject him despite his best efforts. The God of the Bible responds to his creation. Because God is righteous, God answers criticism. God answers the pagan king Abimelech. when the king questions God, Genesis 20 verse 4. God tempers Himself after questioned by Abraham. Genesis 18 God forgoes punishment when pressed by Moses. Exodus 32 God responds. He does not ignore humans as if their reasoning did not matter. This is the God of the Bible. Open theism claims that the Bible should not be ignored when it speaks about who God is and what God is like. The God of the Bible is truly loving, powerful, dangerous, faithful, vengeful, relational, and desperately beautiful. God is a complex, free, and wonderful being. God is hopelessly personal. That is the position of biblical open theism. Classical Theism, Negative Theology. When it comes to views about God, The main alternative is one imposed by the classical view. Classical theism, much like classical Greek literature, emphasizes the how-much-or-how-little attributes. These attributes are aimed at quantifying God, as opposed to qualifying God. Instead of God being described as a person, God is powerful, loving, merciful, relational, etc., God is described as an object. How much space does God take up? How much power can God perform? How much knowledge does God have? How much change can God perform? How much can people affect God? The attributes quantify God. This theological approach is also known as negative theology because it emphasizes knowledge of God in wholly non-concrete ways because nothing can be said of God in any definitive sense. There is nothing God does not control, omnipotence. There is nothing that God does not know, omniscience. God cannot be constrained by space, omnipresence. God cannot be constrained by time, eternality. God cannot be moved by anything, impassibility. God cannot change, immutability. God cannot sin, impeccability. God cannot be described, ineffable. God has no parts, simplicity. These are negative attributes because they do not give people tangible knowledge about God. Thus, they are negative because they add nothing. These attributes do not give people an idea of who God is, but who God is not. None of these attributes distinguishes God from non-existence. Negative theology is fairly synonymous with classical theism, as classical theism from Justin Martyr through modern theologians, has wholly endorsed the negative theological approach. Classical theism additionally tries to assign some positive attributes to God, such as goodness. But these positive attributes contradict the negative ones. As an example, immutability contradicts any personal attributes of God and must be qualified. For example, God's love is not like our love. Classical theists... To counter the tension, attempt to redefine much of negative theology, which, in turn, counteracts many of the solutions that negative theology brings to the philosophical debate. There are close relations between negative theology and the dignum Deo mindset. Negative theologians often reason from a dignum Deo presumption. Dignum Deo theology is theology derived from what attributes God should have. Literally translated, Dignum Deo is, that which is fitting of God. In this theological construct, people determine through philosophy what attributes God must have in order to be God. And then they attribute those attributes to God. Within the laity of Christian churches, this usually takes on the form of, of course he can't, because he's God. The argument is often framed that if God was unable to do some activity or action, then God would cease to be God. For example, if God did not know what I ate for breakfast yesterday, then He, by definition, would not be God. Within this context, people are assuming attributes they think God must have, and then dismissing any arguments to the contrary. God's attributes are determined, not by evidence, but by introspective thinking. This is not to say that classical theism does not have its own proof texts, but those proof texts have often assumed interpretations in line with negative theology, and advocates discount interpretations that attempt to contextualize the verses. Several of these proof texts will be examined throughout this book, Malachi 3.6 and 1 Samuel 15.29 being two prominent examples. Atheist George H. Smith, predictably, is frustrated by negative theology. He first explains what it is, and then explains why it is wholly unhelpful in understanding God. Some of God's attributes are obviously negative. Immutable tells us that God does not change. Ineffable tells us that God cannot be described. Infinite tells us that God is not finite. Invisible tells us that God is not visible. Even some terms that appear to be positive are essentially negative. To say that God is eternal, for instance, is to say that God is not subject to temporal succession. Furthermore, attributes such as omnipotence and omniscience signify capacities without limits. So they also stem, at least partially, from the negative way. While the negative way logically presupposes positive knowledge of God's nature... Most of God's negative qualities, because they entail the inherent contradiction of the unlimited attribute, cannot be translated into positive terms. The negative attributes of God do not provide us with any real knowledge of God's nature. They are mere pseudo-attributes. Implicit within these characteristics is the premise, reason will never understand this. If the Christian wishes to use positive characteristics for God while retaining their meaning, he must reduce his God to a manlike or anthropomorphic level. On the other hand, if these predicates do not mean the same when applied to God as they do when applied to natural entities, then they assume some unknown mysterious meaning and are virtually emptied of their significance. "On negative theology" A theology that distances God from His creation is one in which God cannot be known in any real sense of the word. Any positive theology is undermined by negative theological assumptions. Biblical Theism The Bible, however, does not speak in this fashion of negative theology. Straightforwardly, the Bible emphasizes qualitative attributes. The Bible explains who God is. From world-renowned Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, in his Theology of the Old Testament, quote, Israel's testimony, however, is not to be understood as a claim subject to historical explication or to philosophical understanding. It is rather an utterance that proposes that this particular past be construed according to this utterance. For our large purposes, we should note, moreover, that such testimonial utterance in Israel is characteristically quite concrete, and only on the basis of many such concrete evidence does Israel dare to generalize. Quote. What this is saying is that the Old Testament was not written with negative theology in mind. The text is not meant to be read in a cryptic way, Assuming negative attributes over the text. The Old Testament was written to its audience to be taken at face value. And the text does not start with generalized attributes, such as, God is Almighty. But it provides examples, and then sums up these examples by a generalization. God is not Almighty because that is the starting assumption. God is Almighty because He created the world, led Israel out of Egypt, and can manipulate entire nations to do His will. God is shown to be almighty through His works. Alternatively, we do not know God is merciful because that's our starting assumption. But we know God is merciful because we have concrete examples of God's being merciful. For example, Jonah, Noah, David, and Israel. In the Bible, general attributes of God are formed based on specifics. There are no starting assumptions. Additionally, what this is saying is that it is improper to reinterpret the Bible to fit preconceived attributes. If God is said to be immutable, it's a mistake to take God changing His mind, as depicted in texts such as Exodus 32, and then reinterpret those texts in light of immutability. This is dishonest to the text. The biblical method of describing God is by generalizing based on a wide field of specific examples. The examples lead us to the attributes, rather than the attributes interpreting the examples. If a specific example contradicts an attribute, it is more honest to the text to view the attribute as a generality, a rule of thumb, than an absolute. This method of thinking Making generalizations is fairly mainstream in normal human communication. If a friend is described as nice, a specific time he was mean does not invalidate the attribute. Human beings do not operate with zero tolerance in adjectives. It's a mistake to project a new standard onto the text of the Bible. Elsewhere, Brueggemann sums up another particularly glaring problem for the classical position. Quote, Israel's characteristic adjectival vocabulary about Yahweh is completely lacking in terms that have dominated classical theology, such as omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. This sharp contrast suggested that classical theology, insofar as it is dominated by such interpretive categories and such concerns, is engaged in issues that are not crucial for Israel's testimony about Yahweh, and are in fact quite remote from Israel's primary utterance. The Old Testament, in its discernment of Yahweh, is relentlessly committed to the recognition that all of reality, including the reality of Yahweh, is relational, relative to the life and destiny of Israel. And the God of Israel has no propensity to be otherwise than related to Israel. Close quote. The Bible is not filled with negative theology that Christian theologians dwell upon. The ideas and concepts of negative theology are alien to the text. When texts are used to support this negative theology, they are ripped painfully out of context and would not make sense in context. As this book will illustrate, negative theology is just not found in the Bible. Biblical scholar Christine Hayes, professor at Yale University, notes, It is important that readers not import into their reading of the Hebrew Bible their conceptions of a divine being generated by the later discipline of philosophical theology. The character, Yahweh, of the Hebrew Bible should not be confused with the God of Western theological speculation, generally denoted as, quote, God, unquote. Qualities attributed to the latter by theologians, such as omniscience and immutability, simply are not attributed to the biblical character Yahweh by the biblical narrators. Yahweh is often surprised by the actions of humans, and is known to change his mind and adjust his plans in response to what he learns about human nature and behavior. Accordingly, one of the greatest challenges for modern readers of the Hebrew Bible is to allow the text to mean what it says, when what it says flies in the face of centuries of theological construction of the concept of, quote, God, close quote. Comparing modern theology books to the Bible shows just how removed the modern mind is from the mind of ancient Israel. While Israel was dedicated to understanding who God is as a person, In order to understand how God would act in the present, classical theologians focus on defining his internal essence to build a metaphysical picture of God. This task relies almost exclusively on speculation, as the Bible is fairly silent on the matter. Where theologians err greatly is when their speculation differs from the biblical account. They tend to assume, without warrant, The biblical authors agree with their speculative metaphysics, negative theology, and then interpret the text in light of their metaphysics. If God is said to change his mind and not do what he said he would do, Jonah 3.10, to the theologian, obviously that cannot be the case. It is claimed that God really did not repent, and the text is not to be taken literally. But if the entire point of a text is to show God's mercy then how can the text be assuming anything other than God's changing based on how people act? Not changing is not merciful. Mercy implies change. The text explicitly describes change. The author of Jonah cannot be shown or assumed to have accepted strange metaphysical notions of an immutable God. These claims are forced onto the text, When the biblical account of God's actions and character contradicts metaphysics, those claiming to be biblical scholars cannot, in good faith, disregard the Bible. Tellingly, modern systematic theology books mirror the Greek authors from whom the thinking is derived. Concealing this fact, authors like A.W. Pink like to intersperse their writings with fleeting allusions to biblical texts, In this way, authors can create an aura of biblicality, while not having to deal with the context. These preachers can rely both on people's lack of motivation to examine the context and strong desire to hear strings of rhetorical devices. Listening to preachers who systematically teach verses in order is quite different than listening to the same preacher teach topical sermons on negative attributes. But sermons on negative attributes always diverge from the normal testimony of the Bible. Each time it is done, it plainly shows the modern reliance on Greek philosophy in place of biblical theology. Notice the way Norman Geisler, a Calvinist, speaks, and the layout of his argument. The first argument is taken from the simplicity of God. Whatever is an absolutely simple being cannot be more than one. Moreover, God is an absolutely simple being. Therefore, God cannot be more than one being. A simple being cannot be more than one, since to be more than one, there must be parts. But simple beings have no parts. Absolutely simple beings are not divisible. Therefore, they cannot be more than one. Secondly, God's perfection argues from his unity. For if two or more gods existed, they would have to differ, and in order to differ, one must have what the other lacks. But an absolutely perfect being cannot lack anything. Therefore, there can only be one absolutely perfect being. Close quote. Compare that to the Neoplatonist Plotinus quote, The authentic and primal cosmos is the being of the intellectual principle and of the veritable existent. This contains within itself no spatial distinction and has none of the feebleness of division and even its parts bring no incompleteness to it, since here the individual is not severed from the entire. In this nature inheres all life and all intellect, a life living and having intellection, as one act within a unity. Every part that it gives forth is a whole. All its content is its very own, for there is here no separation of thing from thing, No part standing in isolated existence, estranged from the rest, and therefore nowhere is there any wronging of any other, any opposition. Everywhere one and complete, it is at rest throughout and shows difference at no point. It does not make over any of its content into any new form. There can be no reason for changing what is everywhere perfect." A biblical scholar would be hard-pressed to find the Bible speaking in similar terminology. God is not said to be absolutely simple. Such a concept would have shocked ancient Israel, or to have a perfection of the likes that Geisler and Plotinus would have had their readers believe. In fact, the New Testament writers found no problem to claim that Jesus was the image of God, and that Jesus was equal to God. Jesus even compels His listeners to be perfect, Matthew 5, 48. When the Bible talks about God's perfection, it is usually the context of righteousness or faithfulness, not negative theology. When the Bible talks about God, God is always in action, always changing and molding His people. The Bible does not entertain metaphysical monologues on God's essential nature. Negative theology is not germane to the Bible, but has to be imported on top of the text. This method of speaking is not limited to Geisler. The following quote on the same subject can be found by Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology, one of the most popular systematic theology books. Quote, "...while the unity discussed in the preceding sets God apart from other beings." The perfection now under consideration is expressive of the inner and qualitative unity of the divine being. When we speak of the simplicity of God, we use the term to describe the state or quality of being simple, the condition of being free from division into parts, and therefore from compositeness. It means that God is not composite and is not susceptible to division in any sense of the word. This implies, among other things, that the three persons in the Godhead are not so many parts of which the divine essence is composed, that God's essence and perfections are not distinct, and that the attributes are not superadded to His essence. Since the two are one, the Bible can speak of God as light and life, as righteousness and love, thus identifying Him with His perfections. The simplicity of God follows from some of His other perfections, from His self-existence, which excludes the idea that something preceded him, as in the case of compounds, and from his immutability, which could not be predicated of his nature, if it were made up of parts. Specific focus should not only be given to what Berkhoff is claiming, but also the words and phrases that he uses in order to make those claims. The claims and methodology of making these claims are not natural to the biblical text. Instead, this thought pattern mirrors philosophical texts in the Greek tradition. For this reason, this book will focus on biblical theology. Strange metaphysics will be rejected to the extent that the Bible rejects metaphysics. This work will concentrate on speaking about God in the manner that the Bible speaks about God. Because in the words of Tertullian, What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? Close quote.
0: All right, that was Kenny Brichard and he was reading the preface of God is Open, examining the open theism of the biblical authors. You can find Kenny's other work on his podcast, Metastory. His most recent podcast on Genesis and interpretation techniques is really excellent. I suggest everyone go check that out. If you have any questions or comments, please send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.